Verse number 16. I'm also going to read verse number 17. Or, uh, uh, I'm sorry. Um, 15 and 16. No, excuse me. 16 and 17, because both of them are very, very important. And we're going to look at another point here that's going to use verse 17 in just a little bit. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. All Scripture, and again, I've said this before in the Greek, the word all means all. It doesn't mean some or part or most. It means all. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, what does this word inspiration mean? Um, a lot of times we think in terms of an artist saying, well, I had to, I had to be inspired by something. Um, and what, what they mean by that is they say it spoke to me. It spoke to my artistic nature or it spoke to my spirit or something along that line. And the idea of inspiration is literally to be spoken to. And when it says that all Scripture is given by inspiration, not of creation... Not of seeing society in a certain state, but all this was given by inspiration of God, meaning it was spoken to them by God Himself. And so the very first thing we need to be absolutely for sure grounded in when it comes to our Bible is every word in it was given by the breath of God. It was spoken by God. Uh, it is exactly not just the thoughts that He wants us to have, it's the actual words that He wants us to have. Um, there's not a thing in here by mistake. There's not a thing in here that's not worded the way God intended for it to be worded as. And every word is inspired in Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And because of that, all of it is profitable. And it gives us a list of things that is profitable. It's profitable in doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Now I want you to notice in verse 17, it also says this, that the man of God may be what? Perfect, that means to be fully matured, fully grown, fully equipped, fully trained, all of that packaged together. Uh, Again, not sinless perfection, but he's been perfected in this word. He's grown in it. Uh, Notice the next word, though. Some of your Bibles may say thoroughly. Some of them may say throughly. There is a distinction there between the two slightly. And my Bible says throughly. I like that word throughly. I believe it's the right one. Um, but it says, truly furnished unto all good works. Now, keep that verse in mind for a moment, because that's going to come back in just a moment when we look at another point that we need to be well grounded on. That the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. So keep that in mind. Number one, foundational truth. God's Word is inspired. That means it is God-breathed. It is spoken by the very words of God Himself. Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Every word in here was given to them by God exactly as He intended it to be. It is God-breathed. It is as much God-breathed as when God stepped out on nothing and said, Let there be light. And there was light. Uh, So God-breathed. Number two, number two, that we must be well grounded in. It is inerrant. Inerrant. It does not have errors. Let's go to the book of Proverbs, chapter number 30. It is inerrant. It does not have errors. Proverbs chapter 30, and let's go to verse number 5. Every word of God, now every in Hebrew, anybody want to take a stab at what it means? It means every. 
All right. Every word of God is what? Is what? Pure. Every word of God is pure. It's not corruptible. It's not in error. There's no problem with it. Proverbs chapter 30, verse number 5. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in Him. It gives us a great ability to put our faith and our trust in what Jesus says when we believe that every word in here is without error. We don't have to worry about it. We don't have to doubt it. We don't have to question it. We just simply know, hey, this is it. This is true. I can hold my faith to this word because it is absolutely without error. Uh, Very important that we know this foundational truth. It is inspired. It is inerrant. Number three, it is infallible. Infallible. So not only is it without error, but it's it's unable to be corrupted with error. It doesn't even have the capability of being corrupted with error. Um, not the true Word of God can't. Now, you know, you've got all these other versions that are out here that obviously have errors in them, but those aren't words of God. The Word of God cannot be corrupted with error. Let's look at Second Peter for a minute, and we're going to look at several passages where God tells us this. Second Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> if you go all the way back to Revelation, just a couple pages in front of that, first, second, third John, first, second Peter, first, second, third John, Jude, and Revelation. So, Second Peter, chapter two. <clears throat> Do I have the right one here? Hang on a second. I might have the wrong. Might have the wrong chat. You might have done First Peter. Let me see. I've got the wrong passage right here. Let's. Uh, is that right? Give me a moment. I missed a verse here. Well, we're not going to use that one then. Let's go to this second passage I have. All right. Let's go on to. Uh, Psalm 19, which go on back to the book of Psalm then. Psalm 19, verse 7. It is infallible, and the Bible teaches that in multiple places. So we don't, the one I wrote down is a good one, but we'll, since I wrote it down wrong, we'll go to the next one. Psalm 19, and verse number 7. Psalm 19, and verse number 7. The law of the Lord is what? Perfect, so that means it's without error. Converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is what? Sure. So not only is it without error, but it will always be without error. It is sure. It is sure. And then if you'll remember in 2 Timothy 3, I asked you to read verse number 17. That the man of God may be perfect. What's the next word? Throughly furnished unto all good works. If the Word of God is capable to have error introduced to it, then we could never make the statement that the man of God could be thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Because it is by that Word that he is thoroughly furnished. So again, we have understanding of Scripture that teaches not only the fact that it is pure without error, but that it is infallible. It's not able to be made with error or have error introduced with it and it still be the Word of God. Uh, number four. Number four. 
It is supernaturally preserved by the very promise of God himself. It is supernaturally preserved by God himself. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. And folks, we need to be grounded on these things. We need to, these ought to be things that we are set on, we know without any shadow of a doubt, because it's what the Bible teaches. Isaiah chapter 40, and verse number 8. Isaiah chapter 40, and verse number 8. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand for how long? Forever. Forever. This word does not erode. It does not lose its prominence. It does not lose its stature. It is preserved for every single generation. Back up a few pages to the book of Psalm, chapter 12. Psalms, chapter 12. The 12th Psalm, if you will. Psalm 12, verse number 6. The words of the Lord are pure words as tried in the furnace of earth, purified... Seven times. So this this book has been purified. It certainly has been tried. And it has come out without the dross. And then notice in verse number 7, referring to this, it says, Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. So God's words are preserved. They're preserved. Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, verse number 35. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. That was Matthew twenty four thirty five. No commentary needed on that one. I think that's pretty self explanatory. Psalm one hundred nineteen. Verse number eighty nine. Psalm 119, verse 89. Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. For how long? Forever. Look over to verse 152, the same chapter. Concerning thy testimonies, I have known of old that thou hast founded them forever. So even from days of old, they are founded forever. Verse number 160, the same chapter. Thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. Are we getting the picture here? It is preserved. Psalm 100, back just a few pages. Very familiar psalm. A lot of people quote this psalm. Verse number 5. The Lord is good, His mercy is everlasting, and His truth endureth to all generations, all generations. This truth without error, infallible, inspired, inerrant, preserved for every generation. First Peter chapter 1. Again, back to Revelation, then just a few pages to First Peter chapter 1. Verse number 24, for all the flesh is as grass, 
And all the glory of man is the flower of grass, the grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. So far we have four of the seven foundational truths. The word of God is inspired. It is spoken by God. It is not man's private interpretation, nor is it man's opinion. Number two, it is inerrant. It does not have errors. It is pure. It is infallible. It's not able to be corrupted. It is preserved supernaturally and by God's promise. Number five, it is complete. It is complete. Turn with me to the book of Revelation. And the very last chapter, chapter 22, John is the latest and the, the oldest living writer of Scripture that we have and um, was the last one to pass off the scene. And after he passed, God's revelation was ended uh, with his passing. Revelation 22, verse number 18, the very last apostle to live, the very last apostle to pen Scripture, writes this at the very end of his writing in verse number 18, For I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. If any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things which are written in this book. Even the Apostle Paul at his time realized that the giving of Scripture was winding down. And in the last ones of... Uh, of his writing, the last few writings he did, and the last one he wrote to the church at Galatia, he told them, he said, Though we are an angel from heaven, uh, preach any other gospel than that which is preached. Let him be accursed. In other words, there's not going to be a whole lot left that's going to be changed or given. Um, these things are solid. They are complete. God was getting to the end of his revelation that he was giving to John, and he gives John the authority of Scripture to say, Don't add to, don't take away from. Uh, we're done. It is complete. We do not have any new dreams. We do not have any new visions. We do not have any new appearances of God coming and speaking to us. Uh, I was listening to someone the other day. Uh, in fact, somebody came to me the other day and said that they had um, a psychic come to them and tell them uh, just spontaneously about somebody in their life. And they said that it was surprising how accurate they were about this person in their life. And they had not gone and sought the psychic. The psychic had come to them and just said, Hey, do you know so-and-so? Let me tell you, they told me to tell you this. And they were kind of shocked by it. And they said, Do you believe that um, that, that that actually happened? And I will say this, that they said, Well, there were some things they said that nobody else would have known from our past. And I said, Well, Satan, Satan's been around forever. He's seen your past. He can put in the heart and mind of these psychics something that's happened in your past and be accurate about it. That doesn't mean it's of God. And uh, it certainly is, uh, there's a, there's a, it seems to be a big push in a lot of these modern churches today about these, having a spirit guide, about having God speak to you again, uh, extra scripture or extra biblical outside the bounds of scripture, uh, having visions, uh, being able to even make trips to heaven, Seeing visions, uh, many, many uh, and most all of it steeped deeply 
in devilish and occultic worship um, and trying to bond the two together. Folks, we need to be nailed down on this, that our Bible is complete. We have all of the revelation God is going to give us. Anything that God deals with our hearts with now, He does through His Word and by the leading of His Holy Spirit. And the leading of His Holy Spirit will never give us something that cannot be found in His Word. If you say, well, God told me to do this and you cannot find it in Scripture, then it was somebody else that told you to do that, not God. It's got to be in line with Scripture and it's got to be in agreement with the Holy Spirit's leading in your life. Both of them have to line up. There is no new revelation given. It is complete. That being said, number six, it is sufficient. Oh, if I could could just spend a good length of time on this one, and I won't this afternoon, but we'll maybe do one whole message on the sufficiency of Scripture. But I'm amazed at how we go to so many other sources for the answers to our life, for the authority to make the decisions of our life. Can I tell you this? This book is all sufficient for our life. It is our soul <coughs> and it is our only authority of faith and practice. Look with me in Second Peter chapter number 1. Second Peter chapter 1. And this is where I was trying to get to uh, when I was talking about the infallibility of Scripture. I had, I had chapter 2. It should have been chapter 1. That, there's the verse I was looking for. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Verse 19, Peter writes this, We have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rise in your hearts. So he has a more sure word of prophecy. Well, what's he talking about here? What's he, what's he saying in relation to what is a more sure word of prophecy? Well, if you'll back up to the first part of this, uh, this book, you'll find that when Peter starts this book, he says that he's a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, and he's writing to them who have obtained light, precious faith. <coughs> and he goes on to talk about these things that God has given uh, through faith and this precious faith and righteousness of God. And he says in verse 4, "...whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, uh, that by these we might be partakers of the divine nature." And he goes through this list of things uh, to add to your faith. And he gives a list of things. Um, And then he goes on to say in verse number 12 of of chapter 1, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. Yea, I think it meet, as long as I am in this tabernacle, to stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing that I must put off this my tabernacle, even as our Lord Jesus Christ hath showed me, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able to, after my decease, to have all these things always in remembrance. So he's saying, listen, it's not enough for me to be here teaching you things. I'm writing these things down so that you'll have them in continuation for remembrance. So he's speaking here of the words that are going to be written. For we have not followed, notice verse 16, cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to notice this next phrase. But we're what? eyewitnesses of His Majesty. Peter saw the life and the ministry of Jesus Christ, didn't he? He saw the miracles. He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, when he speaks to these people, he's saying, I'm not telling you fables. I'm telling you things that I saw with my eyes. 
Now, there is one thing that we even in our court system in the United States of America hold very valuable when it comes to evidence given in a trial, and that is the, the viability of an eyewitness account. Uh, how truthful it is, how strongly that evidence is taken by having an eyewitness account. And Peter says, listen, I'm teaching you these things, the things I've heard him say, the things I've seen and watched him, and I, I mean, everything I'm giving you is, I saw it with my own eyes, first-hand account of it. You can't get any cleaner of a, of a description or a portrayal of that than an eyewitness account. And he's speaking here of this eyewitness account, and this is the context that he says in verse 19. We have a more sure word of prophecy. What do you mean, Peter? More sure than my witness of my eyewitness account. You can hold it more surely than that. And what's that, Peter? These words that I've written. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well that ye take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this verse, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not by the old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Don't take my eyewitness report for it. Report for it. Take the fact that the Holy Spirit of God inspired me to pen these words, and it is sufficient. It is sufficient. It is a more sure word than even my own eyewitness account. I'd love to sit for hours across the table with Peter and have him recollect his ministry and time with the Lord Jesus. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing? And in, in heaven, his memory not being faded by time, to give vivid descriptions and stories of his time with the Lord Jesus Christ. But then to realize that I hold in my hand something even more sure then trusting the word of Peter, should I sit face to face with him and hear his own account? A more sure word of prophecy. It is complete. It is sufficient. And lastly, I would say this. It is still effective. It is still effective. Turn with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 4. I've had some people in the past come to me and say, a question similar to this. Uh, Pastor, I've been talking with somebody who doesn't believe the Bible or doesn't believe in God. And I'm having discussions with them. I'm trying to convince them. I'm trying to, to show them the truth. What should I do? My answer usually is always the same, and that is this. Quote or read Scripture to them. We can make good, strong arguments, logical arguments. We can try to defend the faith. And I don't think there's anything that is inherently wrong with us doing that unless we are depending on that to do the work. Because it is not our logic and it is not our reasoning that accomplishes the transforming work that only God's Word can do. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 4, verse number 12. The Bible says, For the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. I want you to notice... In your Bible, it did not say your reason or your logic is. It did not say your ability to debate the matter is. It did not say your extensive education or study in the matter is. It says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit. Is there anything that this pastor can say out of this mind that is 
corrupted by a sin nature, that has any power to it that can discern or pierce to the dividing asunder of a soul and a spirit in a man? I cannot do that. I don't have that power. You don't have that power. But this book does. And when you're dealing with somebody who doesn't believe in the Bible, doesn't believe in Scripture, you say, well, if they don't believe in the Bible, then am I wasting my time quoting them Scripture? No, because it's the Scripture that has the power. Romans says, so then faith cometh by what? Hearing and hearing by the Word of God. They don't have faith? Let them hear the Word of God. That's what brings faith. And so he says here, for the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open under the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So, the Word of God is still effective. We're living in a day where people are saying it's archaic. It's, it's, it's outlived its usefulness. It's, it's no longer, uh, oh, what's the word they like to use? They, they want it to be um, uh, not, not effective. They use another word. They want it to be uh, uh, pertinent or they, they want it to be applicable to today's life. Can I tell you this? This book is an eternal book. God wrote it so that it would be perfect throughout all generations, to be preserved throughout all generations, to be powerful throughout all generations, to be effective throughout all generations, to be sufficient throughout all generations, to be effective, to be complete through all generations. He wrote all of this so that we would have something that our hands could handle, that we could hold in our hands and read and study and know and anchor our faith to our Bible is inspired by the very words of God. It is inerrant. It's being kept without error in the fact that it is infallible. God will not allow it to become corrupted to a place where we no longer have His Word in our hands. It is preserved supernaturally. It is complete. It is sufficient. And it is still effective. And folks, we must be grounded on these things. If we're shaken on any one of these foundational truths, then we will be shaken and doubtful of our doctrine. We must know, we must understand that we have a more sure word of prophecy. We have something that cannot be shaken, that is ironclad, rock solid, and a sure foundation. I know I'm preaching to the choir here on a Sunday afternoon, but sometimes we need to be reminded of these things and reinforced in these things. Because even the most ardent of us can have our faith shaken from time to time. So I hope that will help. Let's stand together and be dismissed.